Everyone faces challenges every single day. Some are chosen and bring us joy. Some are given to us and bring struggle or pain. Whether the diagnosis of an illness, the news of a friend's death, the loss of a job, or a bike accident, we may be asked to step up to face issues that demand courage and perseverance. Hurt is just one of the many aspects of full lives. Each week on this show, ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope, Dr. Joanne Dahl helps us understand how we can use acceptance and commitment therapy to learn to accept what we cannot change and move forward into a valued life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joanne Dahl. Welcome to ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. Today we're going to have an enlightening conversation about the three pounds of soft, gushy tissue we all carry around between our ears our brains. Our brains are the most complex object known in the universe and understanding some basic characteristics about how our brains work can be of great help to us in developing our own well-being and relationship with others. So today you're going to get the chance to listen to an expert, Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a neuropsychologist who writes and teaches about the essential inner skills of personal well-being, psychological growth, and contemplative practice, as well as about relationships and family life and raising children. Rick is the author of several books. His latest one is called Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. And this shows of 52 down-to-earth practices of how to build a Buddha brain for more peace of mind in stressful times. You can read more about Rick and his articles, books, and uh, audio shows on his website, which you can get to by clicking on his name on this week's Taking Her to Hope. Uh, by the way, Rick is also the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemporary Templative wisdom. Remember that ACT has three principles, and relevant to this program, these principles might look like this. Opening up, which is practicing opening up not only to the mind's map of reality, but also to reality itself, which we can perceive through our sensations, through our five senses, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting and seeing. The second principle is becoming aware of the difference between reality and our mental representations of reality that our mind presents. And understanding this difference is a critical prerequisite for the third principle, which is acting in directions that matter to you. And as we will hear today from Rick, we'll probably be focused on compassionate behavior towards others and towards ourselves. I want to welcome you, Rick. Hi there. It's a pleasure to be here, Joanne, really. Rick, now you are almost on the other side of the world from me here in Sweden. You're in California right now. That's right. Rick, Tell me uh, and tell our radio listeners who are always curious about the person beyond the researcher, what got you interested in, in the brain and the mind? Well, the really short version, Joanne, is that I think like a lot of people as a kid, I just felt there was a lot of needless 
unhappiness. Mm-hmm. And I was really curious about what caused people to be happy or unhappy, broadly defined. And that led me into psychology, which then led me into contemplative practice, because that's a very deep way to understand your own psychology. And that ultimately led me into neuroscience, because if you, in effect, naturalize the mind, if you see mental activity as a fundamentally natural process, well, then if you know more about the brain, you can use the mind to change the brain for the better. And that's been my main focus recently. Okay, so Rick, there there are a lot of things that uh, are hard to understand. You wrote, the mind is what the brain does. Well, what does that mean? Sure. Well, this can be a little conceptually tricky, but it actually is really simple. It's the idea that in the framework of neuroscience, the mind really is just information. It's not physical, immaterial flows of information through the nervous system that still mysteriously manifest in a fraction of all this information processing as conscious experience. We are surrounded actually with examples every day in which a physical material hardware represents not physical immaterial information or software. For example, literally the sounds uh, in the airwaves, in other words, the physical uh, sound waves moving through the air right now, carry the meaning of the sounds that we use with language with each other. Mm -hmm. A computer, you know, the physical hard drive represents the not physical information that's, you know, embedded in the pictures or songs or Word documents or financial documents, whatever, that we have in our computer. Well, in the same way, the nervous system moves information around. That's its fundamental function. So in that sense, the mind, very broadly defined as all of the information in the nervous system, a small fraction of which is consciously experienced, the mind essentially must be what the brain does. There may be transcendental X factors involved, you know, that are in effect supernatural. Uh, my personal experience and opinion is that there actually are. But that said, other than those transcendental X factors, which, you know, people can believe that they do not exist, and that's, of course, fine. Other than the possibility of what might be transcendental, we're left with entirely natural processes. The brain, therefore, is the final common pathway of all the various causes streaming through us and from inside us to make this moment of consciousness. So that's what I mean when I say the mind is what the brain does. Now, the other half of that, though, is that repeated patterns of thoughts and feelings, hopes and dreams, joys and sorrows, those repeated patterns gradually sculpt the brain. They gradually change the structure of the brain, which is continually changing its structure to learn from our experiences. So it's a two-way street. It's true that the brain makes the mind, but in very real ways, the mind is also making the brain. Okay, so that was pretty, it was pretty a little difficult to understand. Let's see if I can understand what you're saying here. So the mind is making mental representations of these processes. So we're in a situation, we're looking at something, and our mind is making some kind of a representation of it. Is that so? No, like, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it that way. Let's okay. use a simple example. Uh, there's a sound, okay? Mm-hmm. So you hear a car horn, right? Yeah. 
Well, what does that actually mean? So the sound waves of the car horn, you know, hit the ear, starts to vibrate. That then starts sending all kinds of um, activity through the auditory system of the brain. And so now you start having some translation of a physical event, a car horn, into information held inside the nervous system. Initially, you know, just the pure sound and then fairly quickly recognizing the source of the sound. Oh, that's a car horn. And also probably recognizing that it's not like a fire alarm. It's not an immediate danger. And it may simply be something that's just annoying and not a real problem at all. All of that uh, mental activity, both recognizing the sound and then labeling the sound and then having emotional reactions to the sound, all of that is enabled by underlying neural activity. Mm -hmm. If there were no neural activity representing the information that is the basis of this experience, and again, much of this information processing is outside of awareness entirely, if there were no neural activity, there could be no mental activity. Mm -hmm. So neural and mental activity co-occur. They happen at the same time. Okay. What happens, though, is that repeated patterns of mental neural activity, which occur together, repeated patterns of neural activity based on mental activity, change neural structure. Mm -hmm. This means that what we repeatedly feel or want or think about leaves lasting traces in our brain for better or worse. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems, of course, is that as we evolved as animal creatures, um, our brain is basically biased toward overlearning, overchanging from negative experiences. That's the negativity bias of the brain. And that's why that's one reason why it's very important to help yourself really register positive experiences, ordinary, everyday, mild, positive experiences, to really register them, to stay with them, to savor them when they happen to you, so they actually can build structure in your brain. I'd like to get back to you about that uh, negative and positive experiences. But one question I'd like to ask you, Rick, uh, you know I'm a psychotherapist and many of the people who listen to this program uh, work with people. And it seems it's so difficult for us to understand um, that uh, what our minds are telling us about a situation, for example, that this is dangerous. Uh, and what, what actually is happening are two different things. And why is that so difficult for us to understand? Well, I think that, you know, on the one hand, you know, the brain and is continually forming a picture of the world because, again, if you link it to our ancestors, monkeys, squirrels, lizards, mosquitoes, you know what I mean, fish, yeah. uh, they had to know what's going on around them. But it's important to appreciate that the picture that the brain is continually constructing of what's going around us is incomplete, imperfect, and in many ways distorted. And this happens both perceptually. Uh, the brain is continually, for example, making a picture of the world that is in color, but actually the only part of the world we see that's in color is what's directly in the middle of the visual field. Around it, there are no rods and cones that can detect color. It's really black and white. But we don't see, that's not how we see the world. We don't see kind of a circle in the middle that's in color surrounded by fuzzy black and white stuff. No, 
the brain makes it all color. It just makes it up like they do in a movie, special mm -hmm. effects. Mm -hmm. And then more, uh, how can I put it, probably more relevantly to everyday life, we have all these reactions to other people that are mm -hmm. very shaped by our perspectives, you know, mm -hmm. our assumptions and beliefs. And I think that, uh, you know, there's a saying, you know it, I'm sure, do not believe what you think, right? And I think it's helpful to continually double check our assumptions, mm -hmm. uh, particularly the ones that have an emotional charge on them, mm -hmm. because those are the ones that are most likely to be distorted. Okay, so so this would mean that uh, depending on our perspective, yes, uh, we would have uh, a different viewpoint of reality, and we would we might all be able to to propose this is this is real and this is true although they we could be looking at the same things from different perspectives and have very different different ideas about it same reality that's exactly right and i think uh, to build on a point i made previously uh while some people do tilt uh excessively toward a rosy view of the world most people by design from mother nature tilt toward an excessively negative view of themselves, other people, and the future. And that's the brain's negativity bias, which is very good for short-term survival mm -hmm. in tough conditions, but is not good for life in the 21st century, even though we still have this Stone Age brain. And that's why I think it can be very particularly helpful to challenge your sense of being threatened Mm -hmm. to challenge the ways in which we tend to overestimate threats and underestimate opportunities and underestimate resources. Mm -hmm. So when you're reflecting on uh, things where you feel threatened or attacked or people are mistreating you, be careful. You might be overestimating that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when you think about what you could do in your life, how you could speak from the heart, how you could start something new, how you could ask for more from others, it's probably true that there actually are more opportunities for you than you think there are. And then last, when you imagine what you could do to take care of threats or what you could do to fulfill opportunities, you probably have more resources than you initially assume that you have. And these are this is one example of nice ways to put in correction factors. One in particular is most people are so self-critical and thinking about ACT, ACT, you know, the way you talk about it, uh, I think recognizing that you are a fundamentally good person, not a perfect person, but a good person, mm -hmm. is a deeply important way to see the truth of things. Because, you know, as the Bible says, it's the truth that sets us free. As science says, you know, we want to discover the truth. And it's important to discover the truth about yourself, which is that you're probably a much more loving and virtuous and uh, honorable person than you give yourself credit for. Mm -hmm. So those are pretty important points that you're making, that we, if we are aware that our brain has a negative bias and aware that we, we're underestimating our resources, if we know that about ourselves, it, it, it could help us in our everyday lives. Absolutely. You know, the most important organ in your entire body is the brain. And as if you learn just a few things about your brain, you know, from my work and the work of other people, then you can be much more able to get through life, to be resilient and strong, and also to be happy, and also to have love and uh, resources for other people. 
what what are those uh, points that you would like to, to that most people need to know about their brain? What would you say? I'd say one, it's constantly changing based on what you pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So think hard about what you pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people pay too much attention to what's negative and that they have no power to change. Mm-hmm. And they pay too little attention to the positive things that they actually have the power to grow. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Two, knowing that your brain has a negativity bias. It's good at learning from the bad, but bad at learning from the good. Mm-hmm. Help yourself when you're having an everyday positive experience to take the extra 10 or 20 seconds to really experience it, to get the neurons firing together so they will really wire together. Mm-hmm. And I think a third thing to know about the brain is that it basically has two settings, green and red, uh-huh. or I think of it as responsive or reactive. Yeah. In the green setting, we're engaged with life, but on the basis, on the foundation of an underlying sense of our basic needs being met. Mm-hmm. We have three basic needs for safety, for satisfaction, and for connection. Mm-hmm. So if those basic needs are met, we engage life in a green kind of way, in a mm-hmm. fairly relaxed, happy kind of way. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the brain has a second setting. It's fight or flight, reactive red zone. Mm. where we're dealing with life, but in a way that's very stressful and bad for the body and fills the mind with fear, with frustration, and with heartache. That's not a good thing, especially if that becomes a new way of life, as unfortunately many people experience in mild to moderate chronic stress. Mm. In other words, they're living their lives in mild red zone reactivity much of their day, with very little time really in the green zone, and that violates Mother Nature's blueprint for us, which Mm -hmm. is to have brief, brief spikes of red zone stress with long, long periods of green zone recovery between them. So knowing this about your own brain, you can be motivated and strong on your own behalf to get out of red zone spikes of stress as quickly as you can because they're bad for your body and bad for your mental health and to spend as much time as possible in a relatively relaxed and happy and engaged uh, way while simultaneously really registering this experience to build up the neural circuits of the green zone inside your own brain. So for me, those are three good takeaways from brain science that are very practical. Okay, and I'm going to ask you some more uh, some practical examples of that. I wonder, is when you talk about red and green, is that... Same as approach approach and avoid? Actually, uh, no. And what I mean by that is I think we have three fundamental needs. We need to avoid harms. We need to approach rewards. And we also need to attach to others. Think of the many examples where people will uh, rush into danger for the sake of someone they love. They will ignore the avoiding harms system of the brain Mm -hmm. uh, because of their social needs. Also think of the ways in which people will put up with relationships that do not take care of them, that do not give them rewards. Mm -hmm. They they are not able to approach rewards in this marriage or family situation, but it's important to them to stay related to that other person. So I think that we actually have three fundamental needs. The question is, how do we meet those needs? Do we meet the needs, those needs in a green way or a red way Mm -hmm. to really simplify? In other words, do we meet our basic needs for safety, satisfaction and connection 
uh, in a way that feels essentially peaceful, contented, and loving? Mm -hmm. Or do we meet those three needs in ways that feel basically fearful, frustrated, and lonely or inadequate? Mm -hmm. And that's really the choice. We do not have a choice about those three needs uh, mm -hmm. to avoid harm, approach reward, and attach to others. Mm -hmm. uh, those are always happening. Our only choice is how we meet them. Do we meet them in a responsive, quote-unquote, green way? Or do we meet them in a stressful, reactive, quote-unquote, red way? And there's an enormous amount of evidence now that the best way to engage life is in a responsive, quote-unquote, green way, because mm -hmm. that's what's really good for long-term physical health and mental health as well. Okay, so could you give some examples, like how, how could we use this knowledge to help ourselves in everyday life? Yeah, I think one example, uh, just to repeat what I've said, is when you are having an, a small, everyday positive experience, take the 10 or 20 seconds to what I call take in the good. Mm. In other words, let your help your brain to form structure from that positive experience because the brain needs help to form structure from positive experience. It does not do this very efficiently. But in contrast, unfortunately, it very efficiently forms structure from negative experiences. Mm -hmm. So the first takeaway I would give people is when you're having an ordinary positive experience, enjoy it. You know, mm -hmm. uh, don't waste it on your brain. Uh, really help it turn, uh, really help it sink into you to build up strengths of various kinds inside. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I would say. The second thing I would say is the takeaway is to really appreciate the negative impact of chronic stress. There's a place for getting upset about things. There's a place for getting angry, getting irritated, getting sad. There's a place for that. But a lot of people spend way more time in the red zone of emotional upsets, of ordinary irritation or anxiety or feelings of inadequacy. They spend much more time in the red zone than they need to. Mm. The red zone is bad for you. It feels bad because it is bad. Mother Nature does not want us to spend a lot of time in the red zone because mm. it's not good for the body and as well as mental health. So that would be my second takeaway. And I'd say a third one is train attention. Attention is the pathway to changing the structure of the brain. And unfortunately, most people do not have very good control of their attention. Mm -hmm. And we live in a culture in which our attention is constantly distracted, for most people in the West, certainly, by one thing or another. That's where mindfulness training comes in or other forms of training so that people can concentrate and put the spotlight uh, and vacuum cleaner, really, of their attention where they want it and they can pull it away from what's not good for them. And that comes to our, my next question, Rick, um, about meditation. I am a, a Vipassana meditator, and that's uh, yes. how I got into looked at your book. And I, um, one of the immediate effects of meditation for me has been this, exactly what you're talking about, uh, ability to focus and um, non-reactive. focus? Yeah. And non-reactivity. What is your personal experience of meditation? Oh, well, it's very similar to your own. I started meditating in 1974, uh, off and on for some years, and the last 10, 20 years, totally on. Uh, I think meditation is to the mind what aerobic exercise is to the body. Mm -hmm. It's a fundamental uh, health practice. Uh, and 
one that can take us into the upper reaches, really, of human potential, including spiritual practice, if that's of interest to a person. And it need not be to meditate. Um, in the U.S., for example, uh, the well, I'll just say it like this, the research benefits of meditation for both physical and mental health are really amazing. And I think myself sometimes in America that if a large pharmaceutical company, a drug company could patent meditation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we would be seeing ads for it every night on television mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because of its proven benefits for both physical and mental health. Uh, I would say to people that if you want to meditate, keep it simple. Uh, don't put a lot of burden on yourself or pressure. Just meditate for a minute if you want, or mm -hmm. five or ten minutes to start getting a feeling for it, and then do it longer if it's meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. uh, I've made a personal commitment to meditating for at least one minute every day, mm -hmm. even if it's the last minute before I fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And if people make a commitment like that, uh, I think you'll find that things are actually better within a few days, if not sooner. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and how do you explain uh this effects how do I explain the effects of meditation yeah how, how does it work yeah that's a great question uh, researchers have found that the benefits of meditation uh, move through several pathways one pathway is simple stress relief mm -hmm. in other words when you're meditating you're less stressed you're usually rela more relaxed and calmer and what you learn from meditating you're changing the structure of your brain when you meditate and research shows that as well when you uh, have that experience of meditating of less stress, you carry that into your everyday life and become less stressed as a result. Second, there's an implicit benefit in that when you meditate, you are being nice to yourself. Mm -hmm. You are not letting yourself be swept away by the needs and demands of the world and other people and instead are being a friend to yourself. And that has an inherent benefit, too. Mm -hmm. uh, third, you are deepening self-awareness. You're tuning into your body, you're opening to your emotions, you're learning how your mind works. That kind of self-knowledge throughout history has been highly valued, both from a philosophical or humanities perspective, as well as from a psychological and spiritual perspective. Self-knowledge, you know, know mm -hmm. thyself, mm -hmm. uh, as the sages report. And then the last thing I would say is that meditating builds up um, self-control. Mm -hmm. uh, in a good sense, self-regulation, because you're continually regulating your attention when you meditate. You're continually bringing insight into your own emotional and reactive patterns, and you're strengthening the executive functions of the brain that help us be resilient and make our way in life. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Rick, I have another question. Uh, you, ha you have written about stability and instability. And I thought I think that was an interesting for us who work with people because uh, people often uh, seek help because of some kind of instability of a new situation or a crisis or a challenge. And uh, you have written about uh, instability as a, um, uh, you know, in a very special way. Could you to tell us a little bit about that before we end the program today? Oh, if I follow you, the brain uh, and the body all together is a dynamic system, like a mobile, you know, mm -hmm. one of those things outside, let's say, a mobile moving gently in a breeze. It's constantly changing. And what we need to do is find a balance where there is an openness to life and flexibility and learning, thus mm -hmm. instability. 
But at the same time, there's a kind of continuity and a centering around a fundamental homeostatic equilibrium mm. that is positive for us. And if you think clinically, there can be uh, a lot of clinical issues are extremes of either too much instability, mm. too chaotic, too impulsive, too unregulated, too borderline, you know, too affected by things around the person. Or there can be an extreme of stability, too much rigidity, too much tightness, too much fixation, not, not learning from life experiences. Mm -hmm. And so the sweet spot, as in many things in life, of course, is in the middle way. Interestingly, what helps us be in that middle place is to repeatedly take in the good and rest in the green zone. Because mm -hmm. when you're in the green zone, you're both more open to life. You're not feeling attacked so that you have to defend yourself or frustrated or desperate. You're more open to life when you're in the green zone. But on the other hand, it's quite stable because it's the equilibrium state of the body, mind, and brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So stability is needed and instability is needed. Yeah, the combination of the two. But I think, uh, how can I put it? I think instability within a larger framework of healthy stability, mm. which is really furthered by repeatedly taking in the good and hardwiring happiness in a broad sense into your own being. Mm -hmm. That sounds like good advice. Rick, before we end today, do you have any advice you could give our listeners about uh, from these principles of the brain? I think my fundamental advice is appreciate the fact that your brain is constantly changing for better or worse and take responsibility, frankly, for changing it for the better. You have the power in where you put attention and what you do with what your attention is placed upon. You have the power to gradually change your own brain for the better. You know, one day at a time, one minute at a time. As they say in Tibet, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And we have the power in any moment to do the best we can to take in the good of whatever positive experiences are available to us or to help ourselves move out of red zone spikes of stress as soon as we can. Mm -hmm. That's excellent advice. Rick, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, it was a great pleasure, jo Joanne. You're a wonderful person, truly, to speak with. <laughs> You've been listening to Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a neuropsychologist who writes and teaches about essential inner skills of personal well-being, psychological growth, and contemplative practice, as well as about relationships, family life, and raising children. Rick is the author of several books. His latest book is called Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain One Simple Practice at a Time. This book shows 52 down-to-earth practices of how to build up a Buddha brain for more peace of mind in stressful times. You can read more about Rick and his articles, books, and audio shows on his website, which you can get to by clicking on his name on this week's Act Taking Hurt to Hope. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Joanne, please see her website at joannedahl.com or click on the host website button in front of you on the webtalkradio.net page. You may also see her books, The Art of Science of Valuing in Psychotherapy, Living Beyond Pain, Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy to Ease Chronic Pain, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Chronic Pain, Values in Action, 
and Epilepsy, a Behavior Medicine Approach to Assessment and Treatment in Children. All of these are found easily by clicking the cover or going to Amazon.com. We hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope.